Coming up this hour, we're going to cover some headlines. And then, is being kind to others good for your health? You're listening to The Common Good. everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Really happy to have you here today. Uh, a beautiful day outside here in the Chicagoland area. Glad to spend some of it with you. Man, Ian, we are, we are inching towards Christmas. It's coming ever so quickly. And uh, are, are you, do you find yourself in the uh, Christmas spirit today? How are we doing today? Sorry, you tripped me up with ever so quickly, like you were reading a sonnet or something. I was, <laughs> I was not ready for that. That's how I speak now. <laughs> we're in children, children, bring me ever, that. Ever so swiftly. Wow. Oh. All right. Children, bring, bring father his slippers ever so quickly. <laughs> Quick, make haste. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, we say this, we've said this every day for the last two weeks. I never feel totally prepared. I, I always... Like, I really wish I could climb inside the brain of the people that are like, October 1, done with Christmas shopping. You're like, what, <laughs> yes. what is your life? Like, how? And they're probably just adults. It's probably the, the vast majority of people listening are like, yeah, that's just called adulthood, Ian. Yeah, everyone is that organized and uh, you're behind the curve. But yeah, we're, we're, we're making the best of it. Yeah, I, I uh, was trying to uh, – I'm that guy right now who figured I've got to order another thing or two. And then I'm like, it'll never get here by Christmas. So I've, I am certainly not the October 1st guy. I'm in the conundrum of how do I get – do I have to actually go to a store now because of – Are you the guy, are you the guy that's going to like save the image of the purchase and then print it off and then put it in an envelope and then wrap it and say it'll be here in two to three weeks? Uh, that has happened to my wife before from me. <laughs> I can promise these earrings are on their way uh, February. That, is, right. that has absolutely happened. Nice. And I'm not joking. I, I, oh, now I, I, I don't doubt now, now I'm definitely going to an actual store. <laughs> nice. Look at you. Uh, well, we know, we know if we know our audience well, everybody is done. They've got it all planned out. Everything's ready to go. But uh, wow. glad that you're with us today. Uh, again, we're, we've got a good show coming up in a couple uh, minutes, right after 430, the pastor Philip Miller, the new church, uh, the new church, the new pastor at Moody Church right here in downtown Chicago is going to join us. We're excited to meet him and uh, have a conversation with him. But we have been starting our show with some headliney stuff. These I wouldn't say the things I've grabbed here are are the major headlines of the day, like vaccines. And I don't know if you saw Dr. Fauci get vaccinated today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so. Uh, that's obviously the biggest news and, you know, some of the meetings going on at the White House about continuing to fight the election. Uh, but some of this uh, was still kind of headlining. First of all, did you see Saturn and Jupiter merging into form the Great Conjunction, as they're calling it? You and I had talked about this last week. Were you able to see this last night? I We couldn't see it. And we're doing, you know, our Christmas journey thing at the Yellow Box. Mm-hmm. So I'm sort of a little uh, a little preoccupied handing out these like gift bags. Have I talked about the Christmas journey? I've mentioned it briefly. It's like a briefly. Yeah. It's a really cool, like seven stop experience. In fact, you can come by the yellow box in April. If you want to between uh, today and tomorrow, five to 8 PM, you can go to christmasjourney.com and register. That's pretty awesome. But yeah, I've been mostly busy <laughs> with that. I, I think it was cloudy yesterday too. Wasn't it? Yeah, but I saw people getting pictures of it, but there was there was that. Let me also just let me just cheer you on there that I went. Did you see this thing in the sky? And you went infomercial for your church stuff. Mm-hmm. That was really mm-hmm. impressive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, a, that's a website off the dome as well. I'm pretty impressed. That might be the wrong was- website, but it definitely was a website. <laughs> That was really good. I'm like, did you see that star? You're like, no, but come join us tonight. <laughs> Speaking of the joy of Christmas. 
Oh, that was really good. That was good. Uh, I actually forgot that this was going on. The great conjunction, but I did not see it. But if uh, if any of you did out there, I know I think you posted something on our Facebook page. So we'd love to hear from you. If you've got any mm-hmm. pictures, uh, go ahead and put them up there. Uh, I wanted to jump to a story that was on NBC News that is uh, it's 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 a weird. No, I almost said uh, weird is not. Sorry. It's a uh it's a hard story to read. Let's go there. It says this, and you can jump us into the story. After permit approved for whites only church, small Minnesota town insists it isn't racist. Why don't you give us kind of the background of the story a little bit? I honestly don't want to. I <laughs> This is a terrible story. Well, I'll read the first couple of lines, I guess. When the church doors open, only white people will be allowed inside. That's the message. The Asut. Asatra, Asatru, is that right? Mm-hmm. Asatru Folk Assembly in Murdoch, Minnesota, is sending after being granted a conditional use permit to open a church there and practice its pre-Christian religion that originated in Northern Europe. Despite a council vote officially approving the permit this month, residents are pushing back against the decision. Opponents have collected about 50,000 signatures on an online petition to stop the all-white church from making its home in the farming town of 280 people. That's about... Mm-hmm. All the airtime I'd like to give this story, to be totally honest. I will throw it to you to prevent me from swearing. What do you what is I, what is going on here? I just found it interesting that uh, A, that it was on NBC News, but B, that there was that the city council was like, we hate this, but we have to approve it. Our lawyers told us we have to approve mm-hmm. it. Uh, yeah, like you, this is just not a good uh, a good thing for churches to be doing for anybody to be doing in our day. And somebody out there might be going, well, you know, maybe if there was African-American churches, white churches, that I don't think that's the goal here. Right. I think that the goal moving forward uh, is greater unity in our diversity. And so, yeah, we'll move on from that. I did find this last tweet interesting. Uh, and so this is Dr. Michael Brown. Do you remember having Dr. Michael Brown on our show? I don't know if mm-hmm. you remember him. Yeah. Uh, he wrote a book, but he was the most adamant Trump supporter. I would say we've ever had like most uh, overt Trump guy on our show. I think that was fair to say. Do you remember? He just basically I, said, this is probably, why he's, you probably, he's probably top him. five. I don't know that he's I don't know that he's number one. I mean, in like what he said, like here, here's the five reasons you need to vote for him. I remember him doing that. So I found this tweet really interesting. I'm not really sure what to do with it. He said this, as a Trump voter, I must say candidly that it is very troubling to see many American Christians far more mobilized for Trump than they have ever been mobilized for Jesus. He went on to say, when some respond, we're mobilizing because Biden is pro-abortion. I don't buy it because most of these same Christians have done precious little to save babies' lives the rest of the year. I also question whether the stop the steal passion would be so intense if it was Pence we were fighting for rather than Trump. By all means, we want a fair outcome of the elections, but our passion for Trump these days is outshining our passion for the Lord. Uh, so man, you would have thought that that was written by, I could have listed a hundred people who I would have expected to write that before him. Is there something, uh, is there some shift going on? Are you seeing more of this for people? Like I said, he was on our show and was basically like, here's the five reasons you must vote for him, uh, for Donald Trump. Does it surprise you to see, uh, people like him write these? And what do you think it says? Uh, do you find this encouraging that you're reading stuff like this? Oh, I don't necessarily think I find it encouraging. I think that he has a lot to say to this. I, you know, as someone I appreciate, he, you know, identifies at the very beginning of the thread as a Trump voter, just to let everyone know, like, Hey, I'm, I'm, 
you know, from his perspective, is like I'm criticizing from the inside. Mm-hmm. Um, I think more people are feeling the courage to say things like this. I don't necessarily think more people are feeling it. I just think they're feeling more emboldened mm-hmm. to actually say it publicly. My guess is from the number of people that are in similar places to Dr. Michael Brown, um, they felt it for a while, but for whatever reason, haven't felt motivated or comfortable or safe in some places to actually speak it. And, uh, you know, not necessarily safe in terms of like physical safety, but like, you know, my job or if this could put me at odds with, you know, this people group or whatever. Um, yeah. So I, it doesn't surprise me all that much. I do think it is intriguing. And I think it's the, for him, you know, like you said, to have been so ardent in his support, I think mm-hmm. it's good that he's he's speaking up about, you know, his conscience and, and what he thinks is a, is a way forward. Yeah, I think uh, that's a good way to put it. If you maybe saw some of you out there saw Pat Robertson's words today uh, echoing a very similar sentiment. Uh, I do think if if you're uh, really passionate about still, you know, uh, what's going on, stopping the steal, fighting the election, I do think taking guys words like Michael Brown, uh, who is a you know, an ardent uh, President Trump supporter, I think it at least gives you something to think about. So that's why I wanted to bring it up and just go, hey, do you agree with them? And do you see maybe this in your life or in the life of those around you uh, and and wrestle with that? So coming up next, the Gospel Coalition, how postmodern pseudo prophecy dishonors God. We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Thank you for being with us today. Uh, Hopefully, you're getting uh, excited for Christmas. And uh, as a reminder, we're going to talk to uh, Pastor Philip Miller from uh, Moody Church in our next segment, talking about uh, a special event going on at 9 p.m., on Christmas Eve, and it's one of the stations it will be happening on is right here on AM 1160 uh, WILL. You can uh, have, uh, it's all about Silent Night, singing Silent Night, talking about Silent Night. We're very excited to be a part of that. Ian and I are. Uh, and so more details here in our next segment. Well, Ian, at the Gospel Coalition, Joe Carter, who's been on our show before, uh, wrote something that I found pretty fascinating, uh, entitled this, How Postmodern Pseudo-Prophecy dishonors God. So there's a lot right there in that title. Why don't you give us this article? Why don't you get us into this article a bit and we'll have a chat about it. Yeah, Brian, I believe it's pronounced Pesuedo, actually. Um, We'll let that that slide. Uh, Here's how it begins. It says, when does a prophet become a false prophet? You might have assumed the one clear standard is when someone makes a false prophecy. That's certainly a traditional biblical criteria rooted in the connection of prophecy to reality and truth. But in our postmodern age, when truth and reality are considered subjective and based more on feelings than on facts, prophets are not so easily shamed. Making false prophecies doesn't even cause them to question their prophetic abilities. Consider, for example, Chris Volaton, a senior associate leader at Bethel Church, a charismatic megachurch mega in Redding, California. We've talked about it numerous times on the show. Mm-hmm. In a mm-hmm. video posted on Instagram, which he later removed, Volaton talks about how he, quote, prophesied in 2016 that Trump would be president, which was correct, and that he later prophesied that Trump would not only not be impeached, but that he would be elected for a second term, which was not correct. I like that he includes correct, not correct there. (laughs) Many other self-proclaimed prophets made a similar prediction. But what makes Volaton unique is that for a brief moment, he appeared to be contrite about his false prophetic claim. In the video, Volaton takes full responsibility for being wrong and says there's no excuse for it. Yet he adds, I think it doesn't make me a false prophet, but it does create a credibility gap. We might be tempted to dismiss false prophets like Volaton because 
He's part of the heretical Bethel Church movement. Okay, goes right for it. Or, or that went, that went all in there. <laughs> yeah, right. Or others like Paula White. He puts Bethel and Paula White on the same plane. Interesting, because yeah. they preach the prosperity gospel. But in doing so, uh, we would miss how widespread this phenomenon is within the evangelical church. So let me let me pause there for a second because I feel like a lot of this has to do with your theological, ecclesiological background. There's some churches Mm -hmm. that I think are probably steeped in this conversation, but my guess is there's just as many Christians who are like, we don't talk about prophets and prophecy ever. What are you, what are you talking about? So what do you, what do you make of this setup? Yeah, it's a, it's a solid setup. I come more from a very conservative bent where I've not been in churches, you know, where someone's getting up or someone's declaring this is, you know, a word from the Lord that I have and this is what's going well, to Well, what happen. do you mean when you say conservative? Because a lot of more quote unquote prophetic churches uh, are theologically conservative. Yeah, that's a great point. What I would say is I've not cut. Let me see. Yeah, let me re-say that I've not come from churches where this is something that happens, hmm. uh, where there's much prophecy going on. That is a very good point that you made there, because I used to always think that very high prophetic churches were, you know, pretty crazy and theologically loose. And then I got to know some people. I'm like, oh wait, actually, you're very the- you're borderline fundamentalist hmm. at the same time. And so, uh, you know, I, I, and I do wrestle with this. I, I, when I read guys like Volaton, or I, if we're getting his name right from Bethel, uh, I tend to not believe him. I tend to go, yeah, I don't <laughs> think so, which, which might be on me. You know what I mean? And so um, I, I do get challenged when we read stuff like this. He's about to go into what makes a prophet and how do you know, how do you, how do you wrestle with whether it's a pastor in your church or just somebody in your Bible study who says, I have a word from the Lord. God told me. Uh, and what are you supposed to do with that? Well, and I think that's part of what he's he's wanting to unpack here. He begins a question that maybe a lot of us have, and I'll I'll be curious to know if you agree. He says, let's start by considering what it means to be a prophet. Prophets are generally understood to have the gift of prophecy, but what exactly does that mean? Examining prophecy within the Bible, Richard uh, Blaylock defines the gift of prophecy as follows. The gift of prophecy is a miraculous act of intelligible communication rooted in spontaneous divine revelation and empowered by the Holy Spirit, which results in words that can be attributed to any and all persons of the Godhead and which therefore must be received by those who hear or read them as absolutely binding and true. That is a decent definition, I think. I don't know who I who I think I am to go against Richard Blaylock, but I, I think <laughs> what, it, what I... I hope is clear in the subtext, at least, is that people tend to think only of prophecies as like foretelling, like future knowledge. And that mm-hmm. that absolutely isn't always or even all, most of the time the case. I think it's it's often speaking truth to power. It's is calling to account uh, those in positions of authority and rulers and governments and systems. And, you know, the prophets in the Old Testament were often they were the ones that saw a great travesty when the rest of culture saw like a minor inconvenience, you know, and there's a reason that a lot of them, you know, were sort of on the fringes of society. And so there's, there's a lot more to what it means to be a prophet. Alan Hirsch would talk about the, uh, the prophets are the ones that are connected to the heart of God, you know, where the, the apostle might be more connected to like the mission of God. And I think that that's, that's always been a helpful kind of word picture for me. Yeah. Do you separate, uh, prophetic, uh, language so prophetic as in like you just said speaking truth or you know you often talk about the pastors who are prophetic who have a prophetic gift i often hear them talked about like they're the truth tellers they'll get up and tell people what they need to hear uh versus a prophet do you think uh do you think do you differentiate prophetic from prophet or are they one in the same for you uh I, yeah i don't i don't know that there's really a need 
to differentiate. I think a, a prophet is someone who speaks prophetically. I think maybe people it's probably more more in the realm of like social comfort. Like, hey, I feel like I have a prophetic word feels easier to say than like, hey, I'm a prophet and I'd like to tell you something. You know. Now, on the other hand, yeah. I know a lot of people can really toss around the phrase simply for being a pretty intuitive person. You know, like I think it, sometimes we can like we can kind of feel like we're handing out prophetic language like it's candy like oh man yeah i i'm definitely a a prophetic presence you're like i think you just pay attention to people and that's a good thing and i imagine mm-hmm. you know people who who really do have this gift are probably disproportionately sensitive to like what's happening in the room i would guess that, that you know that would probably be a more common trait than not um but yeah i, I don't I don't know that we, and again, a lot of this really has to do with background. I didn't grow up in a church that really spoke like this, but I know plenty of other people are like, oh yeah, there was, there was literally a time in our service where it was like a moment for prophecy. And I was like, oh wow, that's you know mm. vastly different yeah. than, than my childhood experience. Yeah. So at the end of this article, I'd love to hear, we'll close it out with this. Albert Moeller, he quotes Albert Moeller as saying, if we really believe in scriptural authority, if we really believe in sola scriptura, then we certainly don't believe in the authority of any such extra biblical revelation, period. Uh, would you sign on to that? Or do you feel like that's a little too black and white? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess you're sort of asking me to go head to head with sola scriptura. I think. It's a lot of what we were talking about yesterday with with critical race theory, right? Is it mm-hmm. is it extra biblical? Is it unbiblical? Is it borderline heretical to say, hey, there's a theory over here that explains some stuff that isn't, you know, technically within the pages of scripture? Doesn't mean it's subservient mm-hmm. to scripture. So yeah, I, I would probably I would probably want to push back on that a little bit, or at least, you know, right. I'd love to sit down and have a conversation with Mr. Mueller. <laughs> just about a lot of things. Sure, why not? Yeah. Let's get him on the show. Uh, we would love to know your background and what you think about this. It's from the Gospel Coalition. And so the Gospel Coalition is always going to take a certain angle, but maybe you grew up in a church uh, that's pretty different than this. You're like, nope, I think that they've got this wrong. Uh, Joe Carter writing there, How Postmodern Pseudo Prophecy Dishonors God. You can find that at our Facebook page. Well, coming up next, Pastor Philip Miller, uh, who just took over as the newest senior pastor at Moody Church in the midst of the pandemic. He's going to join us to also to talk about a special thing going on on Christmas Eve. That's coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us right now. And uh, we're especially glad to be joined right now on the phone uh, by Pastor Philip Miller. Philip, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, it's so great to be with you. Yeah, we're really glad to have you with us. Why don't you introduce yourself for those in our audience who may not know who you are? Well, I'm the uh, I'm the new senior pastor at the Moody Church in downtown Chicago, right there by Lincoln Park. And um, I, if if my count is correct, I think I'm the 17th guy to do this, and uh, it's it's uh, a great honor. And um, and I joined right in the middle of a pandemic, which probably <laughs> makes my tenure a bit unique. Yeah. I want to ask you a little bit more about that, actually, because I think our audience would be fascinated to know what what in the world is it like to start somewhere new, a new church in the midst of a, a crisis like this? <laughs> well, you know, we keep throwing around the word unprecedented, and it's to the point where it's kind of overused, right? But it really, 
it really has been unprecedented, uh, this, this whole thing. It, so it was crazy. I came and candidated in, uh, at the end of March. And if you remember, that was, that was probably a week and a half, two weeks into the whole COVID thing. We were trying to figure out what it meant to flatten the curve mm-hmm. and all of that. And so everything was like shutting down. And I climbed on an, on an airplane with 12 other people from Seattle to Chicago and, um, and came in. I candidated, you know, we, we had, we had a business meeting and it was just a camera. I preached to an empty room. If you've ever been in the uh, sanctuary at Moody Church, it seats like 3,800 <laughs> yeah. people, but there's nobody showed up, you know, <laughs> and, um, and it was just the weirdest thing when they called me to be, you know, their pastor, I had met probably 50 people wow. in the church when we said yes. And wow. uh, yeah, it's just crazy. And then, of course, we've moved in the middle of this whole thing and everything's more complicated than it needs to be. And mm-hmm. so it's it's just it is felt odd. And yeah. um, but but it, all through it all, you know, the Lord is always faithful and we have uh, really felt his closeness through this whole thing. And even though there's a lot of grief and a lot of things are not the way we would expect them to be, um, you know, he's been faithful through it all. And so that's our anchor. So I just can't imagine moving, changing jobs at the beginning of the <laughs> pandemic, let alone during it. And uh, Philip, we, we are having you on specifically to talk about something really cool that's going on here in the Chicagoland area on Christmas Eve. Uh, around 9 p.m. Uh, around the specifically the hymn Silent Night. Could you give our people some background about what's happening on Christmas Eve? Yeah, so I'm super excited about this. This this sort of birthed out of uh, Moody Church, but it's it's way bigger uh, than our church. It's it's a Chicago land wide thing that's going on here. Uh, mm-hmm. We just had this we had this dream that like okay at 9:09 p.m. on Christmas Eve. What if we all just pause wherever we are, whatever we're doing, and uh, grabbed a candle or, you know, a lighter or maybe use the flashlight on our cell phone. And if we all went outside, you know, this is good social distancing stuff. We, if, if we went outside and stood on our balconies or our front porch or our roof deck or street corner or whatever and, and shined a light of hope for Chicago and and then what if the radio stations played Silent Night at the same time across the city? What if we all joined in and had a moment there, singing the song, shining a light of hope uh, for Chicago? Um, I, I, just imagine what that would be like. Uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people doing that all at one time all across Chicago. We just thought that could be a beautiful, beautiful moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's the idea. And it's yeah. rolling. We, we're getting lots of traction. Um you know, with, with radio stations, including this one, mm-hmm. and um, just excited to see what God does with this. I love that. I, I think historically on Christmas Eve, you know, like my favorite photo of the night is like a room full of people with candles. But I like I can't wait to see the aerial shots of Chicago where <laughs> everyone's just like what you're saying, tens of thousands of lights. I think that's going to be an incredible moment. Like, like we've mentioned a lot of times on the show, Brian and I are both pastors. So, you know, sometimes it's easy for us to forget that not everyone knows the history, the backstory behind Silent Night, and I think it's I think it's fascinating and certainly appropriate. Could you give us some of the history behind that song? Yeah, yeah. So uh, two quick stories on on Silent Night. It, a lot of people don't know, or, or maybe they're familiar with the fact it's actually a German poem. Actually, right. um, a guy named Joseph Moore 
um, who lived from 1792 to 1849. Uh, he was the assistant uh, priest at a parish in Obendorf, which is near uh, Salzburg, Austria. And um, he wrote this poem and he wrote it. Um, and then one day he decided he'd ask his uh, church organist, Franz Gruber, um, if he would make an arrangement for their Christmas Eve service in 1818. And so Franz Gruber was doing that. But then I guess for whatever reason, the, the, the uh, organ was out of commission. Hmm. <laughs> and so he, he decided, well, we still got the show must go on, right? So he decided to, to do an arrangement for a guitar and two vocals which uh, was so radical. I mean, everyone was used to organ music, but, but this was different. This was Mm. anybody could play it, you know, and it was very folksy, very pastoral sound. And that's why it became so famous. Um, And it just caught on with people, um, which is really fascinating. So that's kind of the first, the sort of the, the origin story of, of, of Stila Nacht, Heilige Nacht. That's Mm. the German, Mm -hmm. uh, version of this. But I think what really made it famous was in 1914, during World War One, it's a famous story, it's called the Christmas Day Truce. And the uh, British and German soldiers were lined up in the trenches. And of course, this is this is tough war. It's gory, it's bloody trench warfare, mustard gas, all this stuff, right? I mean, it was bad stuff. And, um, but on Christmas uh, Eve, in the in the darkness of the night, a German soldier started singing Stila Nacht, Heilige Nacht. And he sang it through and it just pierced the darkness. And then all of a sudden from the British side in English, silent night, mm. holy night. Mm. And it was just a moment, you know, and all all of these guys just, you know, they remembered their humanity and what they had in common. Wow. And they called a truce, a ceasefire, and they got up out of their trenches and for for a, a while. It didn't last forever, you know, but for that moment, yeah. uh, it, it was a moment of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Hmm. And uh, guys, I think we need a moment like that this year. Yeah. You know, my wife and I were we were at Thanksgiving. We were we were just grieving, you know, how hard it was um, this year for Thanksgiving and how COVID has just taken thing after thing from us. And uh, we thought, oh, no, we're about to lose Christmas, too. And we thought, well, we can't let that happen, you know. And that sort of was the the impetus for this moment, for this Silent Night Chicago thing was like, what if we did this? We can do that. Mm-hmm. And it might just be that moment where we kind of in a divisive, polarizing, politically charged and grievous year, what if we just had a, a moment, a, a light of hope in the middle of Chicago? We think that could be be a moment. Absolutely. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, you can find all the information at SilentNightChicago.com. That's SilentNightChicago.com. Uh, we're doing it, as as Philip mentioned, we're doing it right here on AM 1160 at 9 o'clock on Christmas Eve. So you can tune in. Ian and I are going to be a part of that. Uh, and so we would love to have you uh, tune in again. That's uh, all of Chicagoland. Hopefully as many people as possible getting together uh, or not getting together, but stepping outside <laughs> of their homes, lighting a candle, singing silent night together. And uh, just all that that could mean. We're really looking forward to it. So uh, Pastor Philip Miller, Moody Church, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to meet you. I hope things get back to normal like we're all hoping, uh, but you get to settle in. Welcome to Chicago. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah. Hey, thanks so much. Merry Christmas to all of you. 
Merry Christmas to you, too. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for being with us at the BBC. They ran this article that uh, was somewhat uh, encouraging and a bit fascinating, entitled this, Why Being Kind to Others is Actually Good for Your Health. Let me get us into it. It says, well, we might all enjoy the warm glow of helping others, uh, helping out others and giving up a little bit of our time for charity. It could be doing us some physical good, too. The newspaper started writing about Betty Lowe when she was 96 years old. Despite being lo- long past retirement age, she was still volunteering at a cafe at the hospital in Greater Manchester, United Kingdom, serving coffee, washing dishes and chatting to patients. Then Lowe turned 100. Still volunteers at the hospital, the headline ran. Then she reached 102. Still volunteering. <laughs> Same again at 104. Even at 106, Lowe would work at the cafe <laughs> once a week despite her failing eyesight. Wow. Lowe told reporters who interviewed her that the reason she kept working at the cafe long after most people would have chosen to put their feet up is because she believed volunteering kept her healthy. And she was probably right. Science reveals that altruistic behaviors from formal volunteering and monetary donations to random acts of everyday kindness promote well-being and longevity. Here's the study. Studies show, for instance, that volunteering correlates with a 24% lower risk of early death, about the same as eating six or more servings of fruits and vegetables each day. What's more? (laughs) Volunteers have a lower risk of high blood glucose and a lower risk of the inflammation levels connected to heart disease. They also they also spend 38 percent fewer nights in hospitals than people who shy from involvement in charity. So let me pause there and just ask this, Ian, does that premise, do those uh, statistics surprise you at all? They do not. We've we've been talking about this for a long time. I I think this is a good opportunity, actually, if you want to make like a like a four corners community church serving plug. Or something. Do you, wanna, do you <laughs> no, have like a, an opportunity good. people can sign up for right now? Not at the moment. No, <laughs> but now that after I read this, you know, we definitely need to. <laughs> yeah. Just start sending this article to everybody. This is the thing I that I often find is, is overlooked in, you know, ministry strategies for mobilizing volunteers or whatever mm-hmm. language you use. Sometimes, sometimes here's what I tend to see. Either it's like a really heavy handed, like, Hey, Jesus died on the cross. At least you can do is hold the door once a month or, you know what I mean? Like there's sort of that like guilt tripping. And then the other end tends to be like, Hey, it's great to like be a part of this thing together. So there's sort of the, the guilt aspect, the shame aspect, and the sort of like the, let's be a community together aspect. And I, I hear so few pastors talk about like, actually, you know, just to speak to your, to all of our own kind of selfish tendencies. This is just, this is good for you. It's good for you to be generous with your money. It's good for you to be generous with your time. Like physiologically entities that have no vested interest in churches having or not having volunteers come out with study after study after study and have for a while that like our, our body actually responds remarkably positively to these kind of, I just love the the stats alone that you just read at the beginning of this article. And there's a bunch more if you read down a little further, but I, I just think that to me is just one more beautiful affirmation that like, generosity and service and kindness they're not things that we like have to do because of jesus or our faith or our religion or some pastor told me to it's like no it's actually it's better for you physically and i just think i think stories like this are wonderful 
And it, it gets a little more fascinating as you go because there's about like the formal volunteering, like you read about this lady in her hundreds yeah, right. uh, serving. And, you know, it's going to be good for you to go serve at a, at a homeless shelter or go serve at something at your church or whatever else it might be. But this article goes on to say that also uh, random acts, ram, random singular acts of kindness mm-hmm. are also beneficial to your health, which is uh, pretty wild. It sounds uh, you. When you first hear it, you're like, really? Like just, you know, me, you know, opening a door for somebody or me being kind to somebody or me doing something actually uh, produces um, uh, good effects in my own body. That goes even a whole nother level because it's one thing to kind of gear yourself up to like, all right, I'm going to go serve at this place for two hours and I'm going to go get it done. Uh, but then the rest of my life, I'm going to be really selfish and really this or whatever. But they're like saying a a lifestyle of of even just being a kind person uh, not only makes people like you more or might speak well of you, it actually makes you a healthier person. So like you said, generosity and serving, but just random kindness. Uh, I find that to be really fascinating. Well, and I think part of what's probably worth mentioning here too is, you know, when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talks about acts of anonymous kindness or secret kindness, I think that's another important one in our day and age. And I'm not going to mention any specific names or churches, but I feel like it's really, (laughs) it's really popular right now to do a series of good deeds, but then film it to create a social media buzz for your church or ministry or book launch or whatever. And I'm like, "Ah, at the end of the day, if someone's groceries got paid for, that's a, that's a good thing. But Mm -hmm. it, I don't know if it does the same for you. It, it, for me, it like lessens it a little bit like, ah, but you just wanted this to get picked up by a news station. And again, you can make the case like, yeah, I got picked up by a news station and more people found out about our church and our church is doing all these great things and people actually encountered Jesus. Like, I, I could see that. But I, sure. I, think, I think that there's significance, not just to serving and being generous and not just a random acts of kindness, but to really, and this is easier for some than others, but to really embrace or explore the possibility of doing some of those completely anonymously and telling no one yeah. and not posting a photo of it online and not getting any accolades. I, I think that there's a real benefit to that. There's another line in here that I think is fascinating. It says grandparents who regularly babysit their grandkids have a mortality risk that is up to 37% lower than those who don't. Mm. That's a larger effect than may be achieved from regular exercise. That's, <laughs> that's wild. There's so, there's so many good nuggets like that, like that in this article. I highly, yeah. highly recommend you check it out. Yeah, this other one, spending money on others rather than on your own pleasure can lead to better hearing, improve sleep, and lower blood pressure. And that they ran one experiment where people who made a donation to UNICEF could squeeze a hand exerciser for 20 seconds longer than those who had not given away any money at all. That's why. So you're like, how are those ever tied to each other? All right, with our last minute and a half, two minutes, uh, there's a person out there right now. They're like, yeah, I'm really stingy with my money. I don't really do anything. I'm. <laughs> I'm not a very kind person, whatever else it be. Uh, what's one step? How does somebody become more generous or more kind? Maybe give them a one or two steps that can kind of head them down that path. Well, I mean, if, if you're a Christ follower, I think one of the things that for me is always helpful to remember that John three sixteen, you know, this, you know, at this point, almost world famous verse is for God to love the world that he gave that, the posture of God himself is that of a, a giver, you know? And I think, I think it was Amy Carmichael who said, you can always give without loving, but you can never love without giving. Like I think giving and yeah. loving are part and parcel. And I think even if we're a stingy, unkind person at our core, we want to love and be loved. And I think the more that we can see 
giving and generosity in whatever capacity you're able as an act of love. You know, like when Paul writes to Timothy, he says, teach them to be rich in generosity and good deeds so that they can take hold of the life that is truly life. I think there's so much truth to that. It's not hey, tell them to do this because they really need to or they really should or people are watching. So it'd be good for optics. It's like, no, no, no. You won't really realize it till you're on the other side of it. But when you actually start see everything that you have as a gift that you're to steward well, you know, that it's ultimately God's in the first place and you can loosen your grip around these things. It actually, you'll find it results in better life for you. And that's a, that's a really good thing. Yeah. It's, it feels backwards. Like when you hear that, it just feels backwards. Uh, but not only does the Bible tell us that that's true, but now you're even finding studies in a place like the BBC going, yep, nope, that's true. Uh, so if you want to read more, there's let's, as Ian said, there's lots of great nuggets in this article <clears throat> out of the BBC. You can read that at our Facebook page. Well, uh, coming up next, an article out of Christianity Today that says COVID-19 hurts, but the Bible brings hope. That's next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, how is it that our Bible brings us hope? And then we are joined by Kyle Strobel. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us. All right, Ian, I didn't, I didn't warn you about this, but since we have an interview here coming up, I, we got to get the, uh, the holidays, my favorite part of the show. We've got to get the holidays done right here. So what is it that we are celebrating today? I feel like you always apologize for not warning me as if it's like a project I need to finish or something. It's just a website. I feel like it's my job, though. I could could just be buying time right now to open up the page. I'm not. It's already right in front of me. (laughs) You don't have to apologize. (laughs) It's, It's next to zero effort on my part. You could do it yourself, actually. You have the same... Same technology. Uh, here we go. It's really only just three. Um, it's Unity okay. Day in Zimbabwe. Okay. It's Forefathers Day. Here. Forefathers Day. It doesn't say. Okay. It just under holiday type, it's weird. So, again, I don't know why that's weird. <laughs> uh, and then last but not least, National Date Nut Bread Day. Date Nut Bread. That doesn't sound like a good bread. It Yeah, it sounds like... Sounds like a healthy bread. Sounds like kind of a granola family kind of bread, which secretly right. I would I would really like personally. But on the air, I need to pretend like I wouldn't like it. So I'm so so you think I'm cool? People probably this won't surprise you. I went through. Uh, I always grew up on white bread, right? And this you're and right. That, that doesn't surprise like, me. All right, I got I got I got to get healthy. I wheat bread, this and that. And within like the last two or three years, I'm like, forget that. I'm eating white bread again. <laughs> yeah, I've never liked white bread. I don't like it. It makes my sandwich better. Really? Okay. No. Well, you're going to be healthier for it. So, uh, okay. I actually, uh, yeah, so I know white bread is bad for me, but we all have our vices. Uh, at Christianity Today, we find this, their cover story from this week, Adam McInnes writes, COVID-19 hurts, but the Bible brings hope. A new study shows scripture reading correlates with Harvard measures of human flourishing. Why don't you tell us what's going on in this article? Well, it's a pretty, and and again, it's sort of like a study-based article. So Mm -hmm. with stories like this, articles like this, I do recommend reading, at least for me, I don't know, when I'm just like listening to audio and it's any amount of like stats or dates, I'm I'm always like, you lost me. I just need to go read it. Um, 
Right. But I like this subheading though. New study shows scripture reading correlates with Harvard measures of human flourishing. Human flourishing, by the way, is the kind of language that we've been using at community a lot lately. And I, I really like it. I, I, I find that it resonates with a, a wide swath of people. And uh, I think that's a good target. So it says, in times of trial and trouble, many Americans turn to the Bible for encouragement. With good reason, according to a new study. Uh, in the middle of a global pandemic, a contentious election and social unrest, the American Bible Society, ABS, or ABS, which is funny, <laughs> with assistance from Harvard University's Human Flourishing Program, which I didn't know existed, found a strong correlation between scripture, scripture reading and hope. Frequent Bible readers rated themselves 33 points more hopeful than irregular scripture readers did in two surveys of more than a thousand people done six months apart. The study also found that people are more hopeful when they read scripture more frequently. On a scale of 1 to 100, with 100 being the most hopeful, Americans who report reading the Bible three or four times per year scored 42. People who read monthly scored 59, weekly 66, and multiple times per week, 75. I'll stop there. There's a bunch more, like I said, mm. numbers and facts and figures. 42 to 75, that's a, that's a pretty wide discrepancy. I'd be curious to know if you think that it is... Is the takeaway as obvious as we think it is, or is there another subtext there that the people who are most likely to read the Bible more frequently are also the ones who are just more predisposed to want to answer that they're hopeful? I was going to ask you that exact same question, <laughs> because as, I read it, as I'm reading it, I'm like, what comes first, the chicken or the egg here, right? Like, uh, am I uh, somebody, as a Christ follower, maybe, am I somebody who has uh, either greater propensity, not propensity. Do I have greater hope or at least I talk about hope more hmm. and therefore I tend to be the one who reads the Bible more anyway, but it's not, that's the reason. Or am I more hopeful because I'm reading the Bible? Yeah, I don't know. When I first read that, I had that exact same thought. How would you answer that? Do you think uh, which one correlates to the other here? Well, I, I don't know that I have enough information to intelligently answer that question, but my guess is it's probably a mix of the two. I think that there probably is the people who are, most likely to read the Bible that much in my very limited experience would also just happen to be, or maybe not happen to be, maybe they culturally, psychologically, anthropologically are sort of most predisposed or most mm, conditioned to want to answer in the affirmative. Are you hopeful? Um, maybe that makes sense. Like I think the, the dark underbelly of some of this for me is that, and we've talked about it on the show a lot, especially when talking about grief and lament that sometimes Christians can really struggle to articulate when they're not feeling hopeful because mm -hmm. not because it feels like they're not allowed to, but because that feels almost counter Christian, like because we haven't given categories for a non hopeful Christ follower sometimes and I'm not saying for everybody, but sometimes it does feel like, well, I have to answer yes to this question mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. that's what I'm supposed to do or that's what should be true of me. So I don't know. This one's tricky. I will say this though. I found this to be, personally true that when when i am more diligent mm, about mm. scripture before screens or um making sure it's a priority to be reading apart from sermon prep right because for pastors a lot of times any, any scripture can be like oh man i can use that in a sermon so you to just yep. the stuff like lectio divina and things that like really kind of push against the utilitarian sort of like usefulness of scripture. I, I most certainly have noticed it myself and people closest to me have also noted like, wow, you seem way less on edge, you know? So that's not mm. quite the same as hopeful, unhopeful, but I, I really do wholeheartedly believe that there is 
a very real correlation between making it a consistent priority and your own kind of social health. Yeah, you and I as pastors, you know, high view of the Bible, both, I think, believe what you just said, but some other people out there might be like, I still not sure. So maybe flesh that out a little bit. Why do you think you feel, why are you different when you're regularly engaging in Bible study? I mean, I think scripture speaks of it a lot itself. You know, you think of even when David talks about like delighting in the law of the Lord, you don't get to delight on accident. You know, like mm-hmm. that's something that you like, I think in a lot of ways we think of scriptures like that's ah, something I should do or something that would be the right thing to do. But when I read about the people in scripture, when David, you know, described that you know, as a man after God's own heart who made a bunch of really, really horrific mistakes too, mm-hmm. mind you. Mm-hmm. But I look at people in scripture that seem to speak of their relationship with God and the scriptures as more than just this obligatory thing that they're really diligent in. There seems to be like this affection that's also kind of woven into that. And I think like in any human relationship, the more that you get to know someone, the deeper your affection for them. And like one of the main vehicles by which we get to know God is in his word, not simply because Mm -hmm. it's this ancient artifact that has recorded some facts about God, but it's, it's the living word of God. I heard a, a commentator once say it's living in the sense of like, we're sailboats and and scriptures are like the wind in that sail that like moves us places. And when, when it moves us, it, it creates a depth of affection and delight in us. But I think it also reminds us of promises that we maybe have long forgot or have never read before. You know, as someone like part of our homeschooling was we had to read through the Bible every year. So I know oh, that wow. I I know that I read all of it, but sometimes I read yeah. something like that is hitting me in a brand new way. So brand new that I don't know that I ever remember this one weird verse or obscure passage. And yeah, I think, I think the Holy spirit really speaks to us in those ways. And I think that's part of why it's, it's just so important. Yeah. And as we move into a new year, hopefully, uh, if you're hopefully. You know, feeling a little, no, no, hopefully if you are feeling a little bit guilty or like, ah, yeah, I haven't been in scripture. New year's is a great time to yeah. get back in. And, and we wanted to share this story from Christianity Day going, uh, it, it, it does make a difference. And you've heard us talk about that often. And so hopefully just encourage you uh, to get back in. If you're like, I don't know where to start, don't know how to do it, maybe ask your pastor uh, or you can shoot us a message on Facebook. We would be glad to have that conversation with you. Well, coming up next, uh, Kyle Strobel, Associate Professor of Spiritual Theology at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. Uh, Kyle is going to join us for the next two segments here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Monday afternoon. And we are thrilled to be joined, not just for this segment, but for the next segment as well uh, by Kyle Strobel. Kyle, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks. Good to be here, man. It is our pleasure. Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience any way you'd like? Yeah. um, Well, as you've just heard, my name is Kyle Strobel. Um, I've got two little ones at home. I'm on the preaching team at Redeemer Church, and I'm the Associate Professor of Spiritual Theology at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Goodness gracious. I don't know how you do all of that. Maybe we'll ask you that later <laughs> in the segment, but people will probably recognize that name because we actually unpacked a blog that you wrote last week that I thought was fantastic. It was called When Social Media is Antithetical to the Cross. I'd love, can you just refresh everyone's memory a little bit? What was kind of your thesis statement in writing that blog? 
Yeah, well, that, that came to me when I was, you know, as I, I imagine many of us have just looked at our feeds every now and again and just thought, right. what on earth yeah. has yeah. happened here? <laughs> and, you know, one of the things that struck me as I just as I was reading it was uh, I've been meditating through the book of James for actually several years now for several reasons. Mm. And one of the things that strikes me about James is that he sees speech as one of the signs of which um, source we are living by. And for James, mm. there's only two places we can live by what he calls from above, which is the mm. way of Jesus or from below, which is of the world, the flesh and the devil. And one of the kind of worries that James has is that people who shouldn't be teachers become teachers. And it just struck me that social media has a, a weird instinct for folks where, where folks who shouldn't be teaching just take on the role of teacher. Mm. And James just has some pretty, at times, even vicious things to say about folks who who willingly take on that that office um, when they shouldn't. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, but what about the person out there who's going, you know what? I, it's just social media. I'm just putting stuff out there. I'm not teaching people. I'm just kind of spewing off the top of my head. What's the maybe the word of warning or the correction you would give to that Christ follower? Yeah, well, there's a couple of things. I mean, some of it depends on what it was. But, you know, one of the things that strikes me about... Um, about social media is that it, it appears that folks don't know what it means to bear false witness anymore. Right. Mm. Um, there's a lot of bearing false witness <laughs> and there's no repercussions, right? There's no accountability. Mm. And, you know, I, I think one of the things that's so scary, and I learned this lesson after I wrote my first book, actually, I remember I wrote a book. Um, I was probably too young, quite honestly, um, to have written it. <laughs> and I remember, you know, I, I had, I'd been in seminary. So, so I was used to people who were really critical readers reading my work. Mm. And then suddenly I, I find out that there were like pastors who were reading a chapter and then preaching that chapter the next Sunday. Whoa. Wow. Wow. And there was no, there was no kind of margin of their own life huh. and sitting and internalizing and trying to attend to the, is this true? Do I embody this? Is this true? Is this, you know, something that's true of me yeah, and my right. life that I've given myself to? And, you know, I think there's a real naivete about how people receive these sorts of things. And, and I think one of the things this political season has shown is how quickly mm -hmm. folks are willing to just pass along information without ever weighing it. And how readily folks, if as long as it fits the narrative that they're already assuming, how readily they're just willing to assume that it must be true. Yeah, right. Well, I, I'm thinking of a couple of interactions I've seen online. I have two brothers who are lawyers, so they're they're just incredible thinkers in the way they understand information and research. But they'll they'll weigh in on people who post things that they have you know verified as untrue, and you'll see a little yeah. scuffle in the comments, and then eventually the person will say. Eh, the meme's still funny. I'm going to leave it up. And they're like, you, you willing, <laughs> yeah. you know that it's not accurate, but there's such a, like Brian was saying, a, almost a flippancy. And it feels almost like if it's loudest and or quickest, it wins. Like the, what you were talking about, about sitting in things or letting, letting it kind of take root or transform us or for us to really chew on it. Like, is that part of what you think is the issue? Is this sort of like our obsession with like speed? I got to have the quickest hot take or mic drop tweet. Otherwise the moment will have passed. Like, is that, is that part of what's sort of driving you think some of the, uh, the misinformation that we're seeing? Totally. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, today folks are, are looking for simple answers to difficult questions. Right. And, you know, the funniest thing for me is when I look at my feed, my, I, I'm a scholar, right? So I, most of my, you know, work is, is doing academic -y sorts of nerdy sorts of things. And so mm -hmm. a lot of my friends on there are just academics. 
And they are never doing that. Hmm. Like that's what's so telling to me. Like I look and I see these folks on there who, who haven't thought deeply about these issues, who don't know what it would even look like to think deeply about these issues, who are weighing in quickly. And then I'll get these really hesitant judgments about how we might go about thinking about these things from my academic friends. Hmm. And it's just such a stark difference. Right. As I, as I look at my feed, I sound like, wow, like, and, and, you know, one of the things that academics does, I think, is it, it reminds you that accountability exists. Right. Um, that's one of the things I appreciate about my, about work, like writing in the academy is it's, I, I kind of know that what I say here, I'm going to be held accountable for. Mm-hmm. And the sad truth is that's not true on the popular level. Right. There right. is no accountability. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kyle, what do you think our role, Ian and I are both pastors and you mm-hmm. talked about being part of a pastoral team. How upfront should churches be in talking about social media? Is this something we should be preaching about? What, what do you think the role of the church is right now in this social media setting? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I've really wrestled with this is something that's very recent. I mean, the post obviously came out of something I've been kind of meditating on recently. And I, I think the answer is yes. Like, I think I think church discipline actually, I think scripture requires the church to weigh in on how Hmm. people function online. Um, I mean, there's no difference in many ways between if you overheard a congregation, a conversation after church with a couple of people in your church and one was just spewing false things or gossiping kind of openly or, um, and you know, I, one of the things I worry most about is today we, we, even the word gossip, like I even hear that and think, well, you know, <laughs> it, it just feels minor. Mm. And, you know, a lot of a lot of my a lot of the work I've done recently is on, on the nature of Christian power. And I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who have said to me, you know, yeah, I know my pastor's arrogant. Mm. Or I know that they, they kind of the way they kind of berate people isn't okay, but man, they can preach. Right. Right. Yes. Right. And I'm just like, this is nonsense. Like, this is crazy biblically. Like, biblically, this is not even possible. <laughs> right. Right. And yet, I, I think it, it actually, and even, you know, the bearing false witness, I think it points to something that we have just failed to cultivate a biblical imagination. Mm-hmm of what Christian ethics entails. Yeah. And that these aren't minor things. Like, like James says, this is a sign that you are living your life sourced from mm. the demonic. Mm. Oh, <laughs> that's no, not wow. a minor claim, right? <laughs> right. I mean, that's, that's not messing around. <laughs> and, and yet we treat it like it's something we can look the other way on as long as they do other things. Well, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Can you imagine if we called someone out using that kind of language today? Like I <laughs> totally, I, and I want to ask you more about that in the second segment about arrogance and leadership. Cause I think, I think you're, you're spot on. I remember hearing a pastor just a couple of years ago say for Christians though, social media is like Vegas. Like, Hey, what happens here stays here as if <laughs> it doesn't have implications out in the real world. And totally. for the person who's listening, thinking, okay, well he has accountability in the academy i'm never going to be in the academy what like one or two steps would you challenge someone to take to seek greater accountability in their lives even if they'll never be in like a, an academic setting well i mean e- even if it's with social media but this is just true almost anywhere is running things by others yeah <laughs> for right. wisdom you know like mm. 
you know, and I, I've even heard that at conferences, you know, before you ask a question in our Q&A, why don't you run it by the person next to you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a good question in your mind, but it probably isn't. <laughs> so that's good. That's good. A little, you know, weigh this a little bit. Yep. Yep. Well, Kyle, you've got a new book coming out in March called mm. Where Prayer Becomes Real, How Honesty with God Transforms Your Soul. Could you give us kind of 30,000 uh, foot level what that book is about? Because I know a lot of people out there going, man, I, I, I really want to pray. I'm bad <laughs> at prayer. Uh, could you talk to us about what your book about prayer, uh, how, how it's kind of laid out? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great question. Thanks. You know, I, prayers, you know, when, when I think about prayer and I had someone ask me, actually, one of the things that kind of the impetus for writing this book is I had someone ask me like, Hey Kyle, what's your go-to book about prayer? Hmm. You know, I teach prayer. I teach in spiritual formation. I teach. So, you know, that's a reasonable question to ask me, I suppose. And I kind of went blank and it's <laughs> not that I don't know that there's plenty of good books on prayer, but you know, one of the things that struck me about prayer is that to, to be a good book on prayer, I think you have to do three things. Like you have to, you have to be practical. Like you actually have to help people pray. Right? Hmm. And that should be obvious. Although it's amazing how few do actually. Mm. And then the ones that do, they, they, they fail to do one of two things I find. They either don't kind of explain a little more of what's going on in prayer. Like, like how do we make sense of prayer? Especially considering we know from scripture that the spirit and the father pray for us or the spirit and the son pray to the father for us. Mm. And so like, what does that mean in prayer? But then the deeper reality that we wanted to wrestle with was that the problem is really, it's not about how, like, prayer's not difficult on paper. <laughs> it right. makes sense. I know how to right. do it. Right. It's in prayer. Like, why does my mind wander? Why do I fall asleep? Hmm. Why, you know, what, what's actually going on? And, and so if we're trying to give a real practical account into how to pray by two guys, um, I wrote it with my mentor, by two guys who we would say were, were not naturally good prayers. Like, like, we, mm. and, and if you could think of the tagline, the tagline came from my mentor and it really drove the book, which was prayer is not a place to be good. It's a place to be honest. Oh, mm. that's so good. That's good. And I think that most of us fail in prayer because we're, we've become convinced subconsciously that God wants us to be good at it. Yeah. Right. Um, and so that, that really is, is the account is us trying to lead people into, what is actually going on in prayer yeah. and, and how do we make sense of it? I love that. In the earlier segment too, you were also talking about some work you were doing regarding Christians in power. And I think mm. what a time to be exploring that subject matter. <laughs> I think not only in terms of like political alignment and how we've seen certain religious rhetoric mm. align itself with, you know, what some might call a bit of like religious nationalism, but we also know that mm. there's been a number of like really notable Christian leaders who have fallen or been removed. And there's a lot of conversations regarding power in there. Like, I just kind of want to pick your brain about that. What, what about yeah. Christians and power and or authority or hierarchy do you, do you find so fascinating? And maybe what do you find troubling about it right now? Yeah. Well, I mean, to be honest, the thing that troubles me most is that the church just refuses to talk about it. Hmm. I, I can find no conversation more taboo in the church than power. Interesting. And, you know, what it comes down to, I think, is the scary reality that the church has accepted wholesale the world's view of power. Right. And it hasn't grappled with what scripture actually says, mm. um, which, the, you know, the, the resurrected Lord tells Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, um, my power is made perfect in weakness. Mm -hmm. Um, and 
that kind of reality should shape how we think about success, how we think about weighing ministry and ministry outcomes, if we have such things, Hmm. it should weigh how we approach things like spiritual gifts. Although the most of the spiritual gift conversation is to train people how never to minister in weakness and only in their strengths. Right, right. Um, That should trouble us, right? I mean, that that just runs totally contrary to what scripture says very explicitly. (laughs) And so, you know, I'm worried that we are we are just embracing a wholesale of view of power that forgets the cross. Hmm. And, and Kyle, I wonder what's the way out? What's the way out for you know? It's hard to talk about evangelicalism as a whole or the church itself, but sure. even specific churches, if they look and you know, yeah, you know, we might be struggling with this. What's what's one or two things that you see would get a way out and kind of begin to to turn this around? Well, I think we have to start by meditating pretty deeply on just how Scripture considers the nature of Christian power, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what it, where it's from, so where it's sourced, and what it's for. Right? So, I, the way um, in so in the book that um, I'm co-writing, um, which is the second edition, actually, the first edition came out several years ago, um, called "The Way of the Dragon" or "The Way of the Lamb," mm. and the the, the the two ways of power that we see is the way of the world, which is power and strength for the sake of control and often domination. Right. And in the way of Jesus, um, which is power and weakness for the sake of love. It's still power, right? I mean, and, right. Uh, some people fail because they, they think power is bad. It, no, scripture is clear. It, the, it's for power, but it's a fundamentally different form of power than the world understands. Hmm. And so that means we have to consider them. So where is our power from? What is it for? And then how do we judge it? I mean, I think for churches, this is going to be key. We all judge things, right? Everyone leaves, you know, everyone knows the experience of leaving a church service and turning to a friend or a spouse and saying kind of, what did you think of that? Right. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, well, what do I don't know what to say. Like, am I, you know, judging the rhetoric of the preacher? Because, you know, Paul warns us in first Corinthians that good rhetorical preaching can undermine the power of the cross. Right. Well, that's disconcerting. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you know, I assume that there's no reason to think that's just about preaching, right? Any form of ministry, any form of devotion and worship can undermine the power of the cross. Mm. And so how do we think about ministry then that isn't governed by overly kind of simplistic kind of metrics Mm -hmm. to judge if this is kingdomly or not? Yeah. And it turns out metrics that the world offers us won't tell us if we are living according to the way of the lamb or the way of the dragon. Right. In fact, good metrics more often than not in scriptures terms will tell us that we are embracing the way of the dragon. Right. Mm. Right. No. And that tends to be the kinds of stuff that keeps me up at night as a pastor, because people will <laughs> hear the story, honestly, of like, yeah, and then Jesus washed the disciples feet and people go, nice sermon. See you later, pastor. And I'm going to live exactly <laughs> as I have in the past. And yeah. I, I would love for you in the last couple of minutes that we have left to, to help people get practical in that regard. Because if, if, if you're right, and I think you are, like for me, if I was to like lean into weakness, well, then I should probably go into a career where I'm only working with spreadsheets because I'm terrible at them and I would definitely be totally weak totally. and I would like honor totally. God the most because I'm awful at that. Like, is I don't think that's what you're saying, but how would you encourage people to begin to, to lean into some of that? Yeah, that's a great question. And that, that's where I think people struggle with this the most is that, that question right there. You know, and, and in many ways, ideally, you wish that's where the Lord had led you into. Hmm. That would actually be a lot easier for you. Right. Now you're a Moses, right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, I can't speak very well, God. Great. You'll be my mouthpiece. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, right. That's actually where you wish you were. The problem right. is what the Lord tends to do is he tends to call you in places where actually you have enough natural gifting where you are tempted to rely on your flesh. Yeah, right. Um, and so Paul's critique of the Galatians here, why have you begun with the spirit and are trying to be perfected in the flesh? And for pastors who are gifted rhetorically, this is difficult. Yeah. For for people who are in jobs where they actually can wield their flesh and do quite well, this is difficult. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, most of us are somewhere in there. Right? We're, 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 we're somewhere kind of around that. And so now where your weakness is, is precisely that. It's precisely in your temptation to trust in your flesh rather than in the spirit. That's good. And so now, and I, I tend to think this begins in prayer. Now I have to kind of assess my, I really have to examine my life in prayer and attend with the Lord and consider, Lord, where, where in my life am I tempted to think that actually it would be better for me to wield my flesh mm. and to bear fruit in my fortitude rather than abiding in you? That's good. That's good. That's good. That other voice here is Kyle Strobel. He's been kind enough to join us for two segments here. If you want to uh, read more of Kyle's stuff, you can find him at Twitter at Kyle Strobel, at Kyle Strobel. Also, his website is www.kylestrobel.com. That's kylestrobel.com. Kyle, this has been great, man. Thank you for being so generous with your time. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, man. Of course, guys. So good to be with you. Likewise. So you're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. Well, I thought we'd end uh, this uh, this show today with uh, Tom Rayner, uh, wrote this at Christian Post, Seven Heartfelt Prayers by Pastors for Their Churches in 2021. So much looking back about 2020, but, you know, another week, week and a half here, we're going to be into 2021. Uh, and, and as pastors, and we've talked about this all the time, Ian and I are both pastors. Hmm? Uh, just what is it, what is it that we as pastors can be praying for our churches? Maybe are praying, should be praying, whatever else. Uh, and so I found this to be uh, helpful because you don't need a pastor to pray these things. You don't need to be a pastor, I should say, to pray these things for your church as well. So uh, it's a list that he wrote us, but let me begin it. He says, I could begin uh, this article with another cliche about 2020, but I won't. (laughs) Pastors are ready to move forward. Church members are ready to move forward. Indeed, it's time to move forward. In that light, I asked pastors a simple question on social media. What are your prayers for your church for 2021? I received hundreds of responses, but the answers were amazingly consistent. Here are the top seven prayers in order of frequency. So he asked pastors on social media, what what are you praying for your church? Uh, and these were the top seven. Well, why don't we just work our way through this list? Why don't you begin with number one? Yeah, I thought it was interesting that he mentioned that the answers were amazingly consistent. I think that I think that says something literally out of hundreds of responses. He's like, yeah, these are pretty much the seven that kept showing up over and over again. I just I find that so interesting. So number one, uh-huh. unity in the church. Many pastors know that 2020 has not only been a time of stress, it has been a time of stress resulting in disunity and bickering masks or no masks gather or not gather social distance or not. Many of the members took their complaints to social media. We were just talking about social media. Perfect timing. (laughs) I wish we could devise a rule that requires members to spend twice as much time in the Bible as they do on Facebook. We might have a revival. This is a theme that we've talked about a a number of times here on the show from 
various different angles, but it does not surprise me at all that unity would be at the top of the list when you ask a bunch of pastors, you know, what, what is your prayer? Absolutely. Number two, embracing the community. Hmm. It has truly been heartwarming to see so many pastors renewed conviction to be a a gospel presence in their neighborhoods. These pastors are now praying that their church as a whole reach and minister to the community. Your church address is no accident. Your church was placed in your community to be a gospel presence. So unity of the body and then an embracing of the community around us. Yeah. Number three says more evangelism. One pastor put it this way. Quote, I'm not praying for our church to do more evangelism. I'm praying for our church to do any evangelism. Oof. Mm. Another pastor marveled at how far so many churches have strayed from the priority of sharing the gospel. Quote, we have become so busy doing good things, a pastor noted, that we have neglected the best things. I think I think a number of churches probably felt that way, too, especially at the beginning when it's like all plans just went out the window and we're trying to course yes. correct or figure out technology or like, how are we going to disseminate the right information in the right timeline? I I do totally understand that, but um, I think that's an important caution. Like, don't let good things get in the way of the best things. I think that's yeah. that's yeah. kind of an evergreen piece of wisdom. Absolutely. So, again, this is from Tom Rainer. This is seven uh, prayers that pastors are praying for their churches in 2021. Number four, embracing change. Yeah. A number of pastors prayed that their church members will embrace change more readily in 2021. They realize the urgency of the moment. Business as usual will result in decline or even death of the church. Many of these pastors have experienced worship wars and other conflicts. They know major change must take place. So they're praying that it will come without major conflict. That's a good one. (laughs) Do you think that's likely? Uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) I'm kind of surprised that this next one is so far down the list, uh, eradication of COVID. Very few of us really expected the pandemic to last this long at the level of intensity, which, by the way, I remember back in March, one pastor friend of mine in general, uh, or not in general, in specific, he said, yeah, this is going to last all year. And we all like, man, we'll be back by Easter. Like he was, <laughs> yes. I don't know if he was just making a wild guess or I remember, I remember legitimately feeling like that guy, that guy needs help. But uh, turns out he was right. COVID has taken its toll on our health, on our emotions, on our marriages and family, families, on our businesses and on our churches. Like all of us, pastors are ready for the pandemic to get under control. That is mm-hmm. understatement of the year. Yeah, and this next one does not surprise me either. Return of church members. I want us all to be back together again, a Michigan pastor, America's High Five, Mm -hmm. uh, commented. Mm -hmm. I really miss a lot of my church members. Though these pastors are realistic and know not everyone will return, they're ready for as many as possible to gather again in the worship services, groups, and ministries. I think that's such a huge one. We're all ready to be all together, but there's also that kind of in the back of our mind, who's coming back? (laughs) And so this kind of prayer that not only God, let us be together, but also bring them back and let's all be together again. I think that's a huge one. Yeah. I don't think it's just pastors that are feeling that either. You know, we're doing this Christmas journey thing at the yellow box and it's a, it's sort of a drive through, pick up your bag and go thing. But one of, uh, one of my friends posted online after, you know, her family did the Christmas experience thing and said, I might just go again tomorrow just to see the faces of the people handing out the bags. Like it, 
it almost brought me to tears just seeing them again. I didn't, I don't even think I realized how much I missed them. I think our, our churches right. are feeling that for sure. And then number seven, lastly, elimination of the unnecessary activities. One of the positive consequences of the pandemic of Florida pastors shared on social media is that we were able to see that we really didn't have to have all the programs, activities, and meetings we had. It's my prayer that we will continue to refine our ministries and eliminate all the busyness that really did not make a difference. I've heard a number of pastors speak in that regard. That's the one that I'm actually kind of skeptical about. I think that we will have a season of simplicity, but the skeptic in me thinks, yeah, but give it a few years, though, and we'll be right back to the same exhausting pace of busyness and hustle. And I don't know, maybe I'm way wrong. Maybe this is going to affect us culturally at a, at a much deeper level, but there's certainly a part of me that hopes and prays that, but that of the seven, I think I'm, I'm maybe the most skeptical of. I sadly think I join in your skepticism yeah. there. <laughs> I hope I'm wrong. We, I hope I'm way we wrong. Both know our, we both know ourselves and we're surrounded by pastors too, that you're going to yeah, go. Yeah. Right. But I think that would be a great thing. And he ends by saying, he thanks pastors. Have a great Christmas and may 2021 be a wonderful new year. So this is Tom Rainer uh, at uh, Christian Post. We have this up at our Facebook page. So uh, quick note about our show. So uh, today's show is done. Ian and I will be back together tomorrow. And then, Ian, are you even aware of this? We are not back again together for until after the new year, until 2021. So tomorrow, last show of 2020. This uh, is a, this is a, an awkward time to tell you, Brian. We're we're going to do the show without you. That's <laughs> as long, have fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we'll be uh, taking some time off with our families from Christmas to New Year's, and so uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that tomorrow. But we do hope that you have a great Christmas, and uh, we'll reflect a little bit upon the year. Uh, just a little bit tomorrow. Well, we're glad that you joined us today. Uh, Grateful for your time. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life.